Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This edition of the podcast is being released the weekend following Easter Sunday, and I wanted to focus on excerpts of two conversations dealing with the life of Jesus and its significance. First of all, you'll hear from author and columnist David Limbaugh presenting some aspects of the narrative of Jesus and his earthly ministry. Then it's Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason who offers a view of reality that there is something wrong with the world, and God sent his son to fix it by redeeming humanity to himself. Plus, you'll be hearing from former Miss USA Kristen Dalton Wolf, who has founded an online magazine called She Is More, Revealing Your Radiance. She offers a biblical picture of a woman's identity in Christ, which is a theme of her life and ministry. Also, you'll hear from Lisa Jo Baker of the Encourage Online Community, who has recently released a book dealing with the nature of friendships. And on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, author and blogger Elizabeth Lang Thompson bringing some insight and encouragement for believers who are facing a season of waiting on God. Then, a portion of the story of a Christian author and publisher who encountered a period of adversity and vulnerability. In a recent conversation, Athena Dean Holtz recounted being led away from solid biblical beliefs and how God worked to restore her. You'll be hearing from that discussion. Finally, legal analyst Jennifer Breeden of the Clarion Project presenting some analysis of the situation in Egypt where two churches were attacked on Palm Sunday, leaving dozens dead. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. David Limbaugh is an author, a columnist, and a political commentator who has written several books over the last few years dealing with biblical truth. His latest is entitled The True Jesus, Uncovering the Divinity of Christ in the Gospels, and he focuses in on aspects of the life of Jesus and its significance. Here now is David Limbaugh. Yeah, they all present different perspectives, uh, but it's a, it's a unified complementary account. They don't try to square each other. Some writers don't write theologically, but they use compositional devices to emphasize certain themes. And we need these four different accounts because they give us four different perspectives. Jesus is complex. We don't need three Gospels. We don't need five. We don't need one. We need four. But my book is an attempt to uh, try to simplify it for purposes of a launching point to get you into the books themselves, not to substitute four for, or one for four. But we need, for example, Matthew wrote mostly to the Jews, his fellow Jews, and he had a passion for the Jews. He wanted to show them how the Old Testament prophecies and types were fulfilled. The Old Testament covenants were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So you'll see him invoking the Old Testament scriptures more in the new te- in his gospel than some of the other gospel writers. Mark is a quicker-paced gospel. Uh, it is believed that, that uh, Matthew and Luke borrowed heavily, heavily from him and, and are also developed some of their own independent and separate ideas from their own perspectives. We see in Mark the, the Jesus being depicted as a suffering servant more. I mean, other things, but a suffering servant by emphasis. Then you go to Luke, Christ is depicted as a human being. We know he's fully God and fully human. And in the book of John, it really emphasizes Christ's deity, the I am statements. Before Abraham was born, I am. That is the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus was clearly identifying himself as God. So you see all these different perspectives, and the combined effect of those is to give us the portrait of the complex and true, the real Jesus. 
is there a, an effort that you have in this book to actually reinforce what the scriptures actually teach about Jesus? Because you know, there's yes. been so much well, revised uh, these days. The, 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 the I reinforce it in the sense that I bring out what the scriptures actually say, and they speak for themselves. And Jesus tells us that he didn't come to relieve us of difficulties on earth. He didn't come as uh, some hippie, milk toast pacifist who, who was tolerant about every idea. In fact, he laid down the most exacting moral standard ever known to man and said, be perfect as your Holy Father is perfect. He didn't say, you just think whatever you want, do whatever you want. He stood for righteousness, a perfect standard of righteousness. He said he came to divide brother from brother, mother from father, father from son, son from daughter, in-law from in-law, because he represented the truth. And the, the world was under the control of evil forces. To follow him, it wouldn't be easy. In fact, you wouldn't get healthy and wealthy, as some gospel declarants say, uh, claim today. You would have to take up your own cross, face persecution as a Christian if you follow him. So I think in the, the pages of my book, which reflect what the gospels actually say, uh, you will find that the true Jesus isn't the one depicted by the popular culture. He is, in fact, the living Son of God. We don't want uh, to, we must not conform him to the culture. We must have the culture conform to him because he represents truth with a capital T. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And if we deny he is who he says he is, uh, then we are doing a disservice to ourselves and to our fellow people. In the name of compassion, love, and tolerance, we're preaching a lie. That's not going to help anybody. We need to tell people what Jesus really said about himself, because uh, what he said about himself and what he said we must do has eternal implications. Mm. David Limbaugh here on The Intersection. The website address is davidlimbaugh.com. Well, The Intersection podcast continues now with Greg Kokel, founder and president of the apologetics ministry Stand to Reason. In a recent conversation, he discussed some of the biblical concepts he relates in the book The Story of Reality. From that conversation, this is Greg Kokel. What I'm after is trying to find the big idea that fits the way the world is. Which big idea, which big characterization of reality is the right, accurate, true one? And it's clear to me, in the 43 years I've given my life to it, that the Christian story, capital S, the, the accounting of the way the world really is, that's the true one. And the other ones just are not, I'm not just saying they're false, like I don't like them and I'm just shutting them down. I'm saying they don't match reality. They don't make sense when you look carefully. So what I've tried to do to capture in the story of reality, it's not just our account, you know, let's see the big picture here so, so we don't get lost in the details. But I want people to see why anybody should take our story as the accurate true story of reality. It's foundational in both regards, good theology and then good reasons why people ought to take this seriously. When we talk about the significance of Jesus dying on the cross, how does that fit into this overall big story? What people often do is essentially open the book in the middle of the story, read a couple of lines, and expect people to understand what they're talking about. <laughs> right, and, yeah, and, and deliver it in Christianese. Yes, exactly. Jesus died for your sins. Huh? Well, what, what's <laughs> yeah. the sin? And why did he die? And did he get better? I'm sorry to hear that. You know, that kind of stuff. So um, what? But if you see the story, you, you see you see the beginning, then you see conflict. 
it, every story has got beginning conflict, something goes wrong, and then most of the story is about fixing what went wrong. Now, I'm telling you something, you know this because you're a human being and everybody listening knows this, believe it or not, there is something wrong with the world, all right? And if anybody's going to give an accurate story of the world, they have to make sense of what went wrong. And so this is where we come in. We say, well, we got an explanation and our explanation makes a lot of sense, all right? And the explanation is God made it right to begin with. He made, in other words, he's not responsible for what went wrong. And, but he had made human beings to be in friendship with him. He didn't make puppy dogs or guppies or, you know, or kitty cats for him. No, he needed to make a kind of creature that could be in a meaningful relationship with him. And that kind of creature is a moral creature, all right? But being a moral creature, in this case, meant the ability to choose right or wrong and, and grow in goodness and therefore grow in happiness. But what happened is human beings got deceived they got hoodwinked, and as a result of believing a terrible lie, they rebelled against their sovereign, they betrayed the friendship, and they fell into darkness and despair and guilt and under condemnation. And this is very bad news. So now what? Now, I'm just giving the summary here, and people are, are familiar with the details, but they haven't maybe put it in its flow of time. God makes the world. Here we're in friendship. There's a rebellion. We betray the friendship. Now we're in big trouble. Now what? God could just lower the boom like he did with the angels who rebelled, and that's it. But he didn't. He decided to, to uh, initiate a rescue plan, and the, very unique. You know, in Christianity, it's the only religion where God rescues man. All the rest of the religions, they see there's a problem, and they figure man can rescue himself. No way. Man is a slave. Our, our religion, our story has the worst news, and it has the best news side by side. We are lost, and this is why we need to be rescued. And the rescue was when God became a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth so that he could live the life that we were supposed to live and didn't. And then take the punishment that was due us for rebellion upon himself so that we could experience a trade. And the trade is very simple. The trade is we get his goodness and he gets our badness and the punishment that goes with it. And that, in kind of a, a, a thumbnail sketch, in a nutshell, is what we are celebrating here at Easter time, we are celebrating that trade that God became a man to rescue us. And the way he rescued is he took our badness so he could give us his goodness. That's the magnificence of the cross. But taking our badness means he gets punished for it. And that that's what happened for those terrible three hours when darkness shrouded the cross on Good Friday. The father punish the son for the things that we did wrong. Greg Kokel here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website str.org. Well, this is The Intersection podcast with Kristen Dalton-Wolf. She is a former Miss USA and current Juice TV host. She is the founder of the inspirational online magazine, She Is More, Revealing Your Radiance. In a recent conversation in advance of a conference called Crowned, A Daughter Gathering, she shared her perspective on identity in Christ and outlined some of her ministry activities. 
From that conversation, this is Kristen Dalton Wolf. I am so thankful that I was raised uh, believing in Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus. I was raised going to church, um, in youth group, Bible study mission trips, all of that good stuff. Um, but it wasn't until after, actually, I uh, I was Miss USA, and I spent a year in New York City. I was Miss USA. Then I moved to Los Angeles after that. I'm originally from North Carolina. Um, it wasn't until then, I was in my mid-20s at the time, and someone said to me for the very first time in my entire Christian life, Kristen, don't you know that you are a daughter of the King? And I had never heard that before. And it completely, like, turned my world upside down. Um, it was this whole paradigm shift because I realized in that moment that my whole life I had been operating for victory and for approval and for love rather than from victory and from approval and from love. And that is a freedom that we get to have when we actually know our royal identity. When we know that we are the king's daughter, I mean, that comes with so much stuff and things that I didn't even realize. I mean, um, so I just kind of launched on and got really passionate about delving into what it means and what we have as a daughter of the king. And I realized for the first time, that he speaks promises over our life, and he actually sees us um, in a certain way. He sees us through the truth of who we are and who he has called us to be, maybe not actually who we are presently, but who he designed us to be. And um, there's just so much power and freedom in knowing that, you know, we don't have to strive. We just get to be, um, we just get to operate from that place of love and royalty and promises and knowing that the Spirit of God lives within us. So I've been on this whole journey, and I'm obsessed with it, and I just feel like if every girl knew her royal identity, her her life would change. I guess you, you could say that because we have this identity in Christ, we have the ability to shine for Him. We have the ability to demonstrate that radiance. Talk about what that means to you and uh, and really when we when we're able to display radiance how that ma- that is manifested well the freedom in that is we don't have to try we don't have to like I, I keep using the word strive but we don't have to perform and strive to shine for him the freedom and the power is in the fact that he actually shines through us because when we realize that we are his daughter and that we, and then when we realize that we are the bride of Christ and we know that he comes to live within us, then we just have to host his presence. We get to actually, I mean, how crazy is it that we get to host God, like he lives within us. And so all we have to do is walk in agreement with him, walk in agreement with what he says about us and let him do the shining. Um, And I think one of the keys to that is to never allow ourselves to get jaded and bitter. So I would say that for me in my life, um, one of the, I would say that like the the theme word over my life from being in the seventh grade to college was the word rejection. And I, I put myself out there a lot because I had these big dreams and big goals and I just always 
placed as the first runner up or I always felt overlooked or unseen or unwanted. And, you know, when I look back, I'm like, gosh, I, I could have um, been so discouraged by those things. I could have just checked out of life. I could have um, become jaded and let my heart become hardened. And when we let our hearts become hardened, when people hurt us, when they betray us, uh, when we are overlooked and rejected, then then we're not cultivating that that um, host and that soil for Jesus to shine through. So I think it is really key to allow the adversity in our life um, to refine us and to fuel us to keep going and to never lose our sense of wonder. Kristen Dalton-Wolf here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website sheismore.com. Author Lisa Jo Baker spoke with me recently. She serves as community manager for the online community website Encourage. In our conversation, she shared material related to the content of her book, Never Unfriended, The Secret to Finding and Keeping Lasting Friendships. This is Lisa Jo Baker now. What do you see as maybe some of the principal, well, friendship lies that are out there? Yeah. Yeah, that we tell ourselves, man, there are a lot of them, but I think if we were to pick three, I just look at the word lie in order to help myself remember, and I look at the first letter L, so we tell ourselves the lie that we've been left out on purpose, you know, not just that we've been left out or forgotten or overlooked, but that, like, purposely someone has left us out, and I don't know about you, but when I talk to my women friends, I know that we are really great at making up entire stories in our heads about cause and effect or what people are saying about us or why we were left out that aren't true, you know, instead of assuming the best about our friends. So if we tell ourselves this lie that we've been left out on purpose, then suddenly we're creating a barrier between connecting with a friend or trusting a friend or giving a friend the benefit of the doubt. So that's a big one, being left out. If we look at I in the word lie, that this lie that we're invisible, that somehow if I'm not exactly like her or I don't have her skills or her experiences or her messy bun or her homeschooling curricula, you know, then, then I'm invisible if I'm not like her, that I don't count, that I'm less than. And it's such a lie from the enemy. I think what he wants to do is have all those beautiful gifts and talents God has sown into us for us to disregard them, to treat them as invisible if they're not the same as someone else that we want to be more like. And then the last one, E, in the word lie, that everything is about me. I tell myself this lie all the time, this voice in my head that somehow assumes anything happening in a friendship, any tension or any reason someone's upset or that I haven't heard from her, that somehow it's all traced back to me. And instead, she might have just had a really bad day or something difficult happened with her. So how can I stop putting myself at the center of every friendship instead of asking, what's in it for me? How can I start asking, what's in it for her? You know, what's her day been like? How can I assume the best about my friend instead of assuming that everything negative is somehow directed at me? You've had the benefit of connecting and communicating with thousands of women throughout your time as as the manager here of the Encourage Ministry. So when you look at the definition of friendship, what would be your mm-hmm. definition and how might that be different than what what others might expect? You know, we live in a what's-in-it-for-me world these days. If you look at all the commercials on TV, they're all promising some amazing shiny thing for $19.99 and free shipping that will help you. 
And what I love about Jesus is he is always turning that paradigm on its head. And instead of saying, what's in it for me, he is constantly saying, what's in it for you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I show up for you? And the classic example is in the parable of the Good Samaritan, because the question that's been asked is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers it with this story of the Good Samaritan, and in essence says, this is what a neighbor looks like. Go and be like this person. And so in our culture, we're in friendship. We often are thinking, what's in it for me? What's she doing for me? Or what did she leave me out of? Or how can she fulfill these expectations for me? What if instead we flip that on our head and said, how can I be a friend to her? How can I love her? How can I show up? How can I champion? How can I meet her needs? And then making that switch in our heads and in our hearts, it puts somebody else at the center of the friendship instead of ourselves. It is really a great way to combat our natural lies to ourselves, our selfish inclinations, and instead focus on somebody else as the priority of the friendship in a way that Christ modeled for us. Well, that E in the acronym lie, everything is about me. And Jesus, as right. you mentioned, taught to to get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on others. And when you when you look at that unselfish approach, how does that contribute or how does how would someone actually demonstrate that to another person? I think that there are some really simple practical ways. I think one of them is being willing to be interrupted. I think we live our lives really scheduled and we can kind of resent people who need time from us or are interrupting us. But when we look at Jesus's life, his entire ministry is a story of constantly being interrupted. He's on his way one place and someone stops him because they want healing. He's on his way to heal somebody and somebody else interrupts him for healing. And he's never disgruntled. He's never just, he's never frustrated with those people. He's never saying he's too busy. I think if we are stop seeing the world through a lens where everything is about me. And we start to think, oh my goodness, these interruptions in my daily life are actually invitations from Jesus to connect with the people around me. Lisa Joe Baker here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website neverunfriended.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more by visiting the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Elizabeth Lane Thompson is an author and blogger. Recently, she shared her perspective on trusting God in times of waiting relative to the book, When God Says Wait, Navigating Life's Detours and Delays Without Losing Your Faith, Your Friends, or Your Mind. From that recent conversation, this is Elizabeth Lang Thompson. We get to choose whether or not the waiting benefits us or not, and that's the hard thing. And I, I don't want to say that lightly because I recognize, like, when you're going through 
one of those gut-wrenching kind of waits. And there are all different levels of waiting. Sometimes you're waiting for a promotion or you're waiting for something kind of milder that's not going to change the entire course of your life. But if you're, you know, a 37-year-old woman, no guy in sight, you really want to have a big family, you feel this biological clock ticking and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, you start to feel this panic. And and one of the things that I really try to equip people with in this book is some tools. I, I call them uh, survival skills for spiritual waiting of, okay, how can we reclaim and redeem this time? Because it can feel like lost time when you're waiting and you would rather be doing something else with your life than what you're doing right yeah. now. Um, it can get very frustrating and we can feel like, well, my life is wasting away. And yet there are ways that we can use scripture, we can use our walk with God, we can find purpose for these in-between times. And, and absolutely, if we choose to really make the best of these times and fight through those doubts and struggles and questions with God, we can make these really meaningful times in our lives, but it's not easy, and it, and it really does take intentionality. It takes a lot of um, time in the scriptures and in prayer to make those times worthwhile. Well, and you used a word, panic. I was actually thinking of a word of, of fear, and of course they're, they're related. And in, mm-hmm. the, in the process of waiting, you can really be afraid of a variety of things. Maybe, you know, we, we talk in terms of the outcome, and in the Bible we see where at the end of the waiting period, there's a, a good outcome. There, you know, I can imagine that people that are caught in a, in a time of waiting, maybe in a delay or a detour or whatever, you know, they may be afraid that there is not an outcome in sight, and perhaps there will not be a, a necessarily a good outcome at the end mm-hmm. of this. And that's where you go back to, to this whole concept of processing. We may be waiting for something and trusting God for something, but in the end, it, the, the outcome may be totally different than, than what we may have desired going in. Absolutely. Maybe, is that, and is, I think that's, you talk about fear and, and, that's so difficult. For me, that's always one of the most difficult parts of waiting is is not knowing, okay, is God going to say yes to this? Is he going to say no? Is he going to say, well, yes, but a revised version of what it is that you, you were originally asking for? And there's this fear and this, um, we have to surrender control, which for me is always very difficult and takes an intense amount of prayer to just let go and say, okay, God, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, that's, those are difficult times when we have to really get on our knees and, and, and let go and then be okay with, you know, sometimes you pray your heart out for years and God says, I, I have a different plan and, and learning to accept that, learning to, um, find joy in a different plan. Um, one of the things I've realized in myself is I tend to make rules for my own joy. Rules like, I can't be happy unless. I can't be used by God until. And and sometimes God is saying, hey, hey, I did not make that rule for you. In fact, I have a totally different plan. You've got to surrender that rule for your life. 
and go with what I'm giving you here. This life that I have given you, it might not be the one you originally wanted, but it can be amazing if you'll let me make it that for you. Elizabeth Lang Thompson here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website lizzielife.com. Well, I had the opportunity recently to talk with Athena Dean Holtz. She is the founder and publisher of Redemption Press. She discussed some elements of her life story, her vulnerability, and God's faithfulness, as she relates in the book, Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God. From that recent conversation, this is Athena Dean Holtz. Well, at age 59, realizing, okay, um, I've lost my marriage, I've lost my family, I've lost my company, I've lost my car, my house, my credit, my reputation, I lost everything, and just had a smoldering wick that praise god got fanned back into flame you know flamed and that began to grow again but going through the counseling i mean i needed to just stop everything not not have to work not get involved in any causes not date i just had to be with god have get some counseling understand get deprogrammed i mean i really needed to do that um and so I spent three months, I was able to borrow some money from my brother so that I could just not have to worry about making any money. I could get some intensive counseling and really get centered back on what the truth is and get rid of all those lies that I believed that I'd been fed. Uh, and so that process was, you know, life-changing, to say the least. You know, God can use the scripture to just destroy a lie just like that when the thought comes in that's a lie he can do it if we ask him to and so that just began this whole new walk for me to learn what it really meant to love God because I'd been I'd seen such a warped view of that that uh, I needed I needed to see the truth and he began to reveal himself took me down to Texas where I took care of my mom who had Alzheimer's and so much time down there. I whined, I complained. I'm like, Lord, when are you ever going to restore my life? When, when are you going to bring me a godly husband? When you, you know, all those things that I just whined about because I am a type A and I just like to have things get done fast. He, you know, he took me out and taught me to be still and taught me to, to really know him. So that then when wine press did go down, three years ago, and I was asked to come back and try and help some of these authors that were thrown under the bus, basically, um, that began a restoration process that completely just blew my mind. I mean, I couldn't have imagined that he would do what he did. Well, you're listening to Meeting House here on Faith Radio. Athena Dean Holtz joining us today. She is the author of the book, Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God. And obviously, Athena, you are sharing some stories about what has taken place in your life, including your experience in the Christian publishing industry. Of course, you're you're back in the industry. You've started Redemption Press. And tell me why it is that that you've decided to share this story as well as other elements of your life. Why why now and what would you want people to gather from this story? Well, why now because I mean I've been blogging about it for 5 years. So it I've that's how I processed a lot of learning about cults and 
understanding vulnerabilities and seeing, you know, just all the different aspects of healing, I've blogged about that and been very transparent about it. So it's not like this is the first time I've written about it. It's just I've for the last three years since God sovereignly brought me back to Washington, um, gave me this Cinderella uh, story, um, being becoming a pastor's wife and being back in publishing and continuing on the radio. It was just one of those things where um, it had to be, I mean, it needed to be all in one book. I mean, it was scattered all over different blogs and stuff. So finally, just, I mean, it was in November 20th. My friend said to me, look, you're so busy helping other people write their books. You need to get this done. Get a collaborator. Give her all your stuff and get it done. (laughs) And I'm like, Okay, you're right. And I mean, 77 days later, the book was in my hand. I mean, that's unheard of. But it was a God thing. And, um, you know, what I want is for people to have hope that, I mean, my story is so out there. I mean, it's so devastating. It, not, you know, the stuff in childhood, but then, um, you know, just as a Christian, I've gone through so much. But to see how God has restored and how he has healed and how faithful he is, not just when we're on the mountaintop, but he's faithful when we are in the depths of despair. So I want people to have hope. Athena Dean Holtz here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website, athenadeanholtz.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Jennifer Breeden, an attorney and legal analyst for the Clarion Project, which concentrates on the Middle East and human rights issues. She shared some perspective with me on recent attacks on Coptic Christian churches in Egypt. Those took place on Palm Sunday. From that conversation, this is Jennifer Breeden. So the Coptics are huge. They've been around for centuries. They're among the first generation of Christians um, when the when the first disciples and their teachers were going out and spreading the gospel after after Jesus had risen, they really are are one of the cornerstones of Christianity there. Now, in terms of um, modern day rule, you know what's been very difficult, to be honest, is the the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. So in Egypt, you have the Muslim Brotherhood, which originated there in 1928. While they were banned in the 1950s, there have been pockets. You talked about the Mubarak regime, but there have been pockets there um, of governments that allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to continue organizing. And so what they did, they got into sectors of Egyptian government, such as health and education specifically. And despite the fact that they are still outlawed and they're still banned, they've been kind of running the education departments in Egypt. And because of that, their anti-Christian sentiments, you know, Muslim Brotherhood headquarters, and especially some of their leaders, such as Saeed Qutub, are people that came and said that Christians are at the fault they're at fault for the secularization of culture. They're basically Christians are the bane of existence, and they're the reason that uh, the Western culture is as horrible as it is. And so when some of these Muslim Brotherhood leaders came back, they started spouting that rhetoric within not only the education system, but spreading that throughout Egypt, which has allowed for large amounts of attacks against the Coptic Christians. And so if you go outside of Cairo, most people when they visit Egypt are in Cairo, but I've traveled outside of Cairo, and when you get to these small pockets downtown or um, to the south of it, they call that Upper Egypt is the Southern Egypt, they're actually villages that are separated based on religion. So you have Coptic villages, and then you have Muslim villages next door, but the Muslim villages will build their mosques their structures and their Islamic signs right over the Coptic churches. So there's been persecution going on against these people 
30, 40 years. And since the Muslim Brotherhood came into power with Morsi a few years ago, um, it's gotten much, much worse. Just the allowances, not just the, the murders that we see around there, but also uh, mysterious deaths in the military of Christians. They'll name them suicides and they're never looked into, especially in some of these local government areas. And what's interesting about this is that when we hear about terrorist attacks or attacks against Christians, we think ISIS. We think some of these al Qaeda. We need to know that there is a, a terrorist group involved. But in Egypt, there's been so much brainwashing by the Muslim Brotherhood adherents that it's really just radicals. They, they don't necessarily even have to adhere to any group. They're just wanting to go out and kill Coptic Christians and make sure that they rid their society of them. So it is a, it is a huge problem. We had two uh, major attacks against Coptic churches on Palm Sunday. In fact, a video came out in March, another one recently in April. Another attack happened actually a couple days ago, April 14th. And uh, But in March, a video was released from a Coptic Christian village, one that I was talking about, where after Friday mosque prayers, um, you can see a, an angry mob of people who left mosque prayers and went throughout a Christian village just trying to hurt people and um, violently assault them. And so a lot of people were assaulted that day as well. Mm. Well, let's talk specifically about those Palm Sunday attacks. Talk about those particular attacks. Mm-hmm. Who's responsible and how the people have responded? ISIS is responsible for this. Now, we were talking a little bit about um, what they call Upper Egypt, which is actually the south of Egypt. These attacks were in the north of Egypt, which uh, oppositely they call uh, Lower Egypt. So in the north of Egypt, you're actually surrounded by two very serious branches of ISIS adherents. Um, and ISIS pockets. And so you have an ISIS pocket in the Sinai Peninsula, which is the north. So that would be to the right of northern Egypt. And then on the left, you have Libya. Libya has actually been one of the largest growing um, ISIS chains. That's a lot of the reason that people are trying to leave Libya via the Mediterranean on rafts to escape because ISIS has been growing there as a stronghold. So some of these um, adherences in Alexandria and Tanto, these are two cities in the northern of Egypt where these uh, Palm Sunday attacks happened. It was absolutely gruesome. I mean, just some of the pictures that came out were horrifying to me. And I was speaking with one of my uh, with one of my colleagues just about how uh, one of my colleagues who's actually there knows the Christian community as a part of it and how people are just mortified. And the Coptics are they've been attacked so much and especially that ISIS claimed responsibility for this. It's very dangerous that any kind of ISIS adherent has got a hold in Egypt, because I know there's been a big campaign against them. But as we were talking about, it's not that far-fetched for anybody who adheres to this radical Islamist ideology against Christians to just join arms and fight with ISIS and see what they can do. So these attacks are very serious. We're hoping to see more from the Egyptian government. Um, president Sisi is a friend of the Christians, the current president, but he has a definite uphill battle to go. And so the, I think the fight for the soul of Egypt is definitely going to have to be in the north when it comes to ISIS pockets that have infiltrated through Libya and the Sinai Peninsula to make sure that they rid their country of extremism and really start to fight for, the, for just the soul of the Egyptian people in general. Jennifer Breeden here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website clarionproject.org. You can follow her on Twitter at Jennifer Breeden. That's B-R-E-E-D-O-N. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including content from the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. 
Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.